Thank you, Jenna. Hey, good morning. Hey, welcome to Providence. My name is Joseph. You guys look exceptionally well this morning. Uh, it is a joy to gather with you all. Uh, as Jenna said, we are in a series on revival. And uh, if this is your first time to gather with us, first of all, I want to let you know that we are glad you're here. And whether you're a Christian, not sure you're a Christian, or sure you're not a Christian, as always, uh, my hope, my prayer is that you would be encountered by the living God this morning and you would be transformed by his word as you hear it. And so would you guys please pray with me to that end. Father, we come before your throne of grace this morning and we petition you by the blood of your son, Christ Jesus, to cause your word to fall on hearts that are ready to receive it and respond to it in repentance and faith. And God, we ask that you would do the miraculous work of softening hardened hearts, of opening blind eyes, of unstopping deaf ears this morning. And please, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you enable me to clearly proclaim your word in a manner that edifies the church and exalts Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. Okay, so we're in this series on revival, and we, ha- we started out by explaining what revival is and why we need it in the first couple of weeks. And last week, we began exploring the defining characteristics of a revived church, and this morning, we're going to continue that. But before we do, I always want to make sure that I'm making these appropriate disclaimers, and one of them is this. It's that we understand that we cannot manufacture revival or an outpouring of God's Spirit. We understand that that requires God's manifestation. God must manifest revival among us. All we can do is pray for it and posture ourselves to receive it by faith. Now you might ask, how can we posture ourselves without or posture ourselves without that being something that is in and of itself a contrived effort? And I wanna, I wanna make it clear. Uh, we posture ourselves by simply hoisting our sails in the right direction, and praying for that mighty rushing wind of God's Spirit to blow upon us. We posture ourselves by hoisting our sails in the right direction and praying for God's Holy Spirit to blow upon us. Now, how do we know that our sails are pointed in the right direction? We do that by assessing how far we've drifted off course and by aligning ourselves with the Word of God. So how do we hoist ourselves? It's, it's really by assessing how far we drifted off course and aligning ourselves with the Word of God or realigning ourselves with the Word of God with the help of the Holy Spirit. And so what we've been doing the past couple of weeks is we've been, we've been doing that. We've been realigning ourselves with the Word of God and asking where are we in our spiritual health. And so last week, uh, Corey pre- preached a phenomenal message from Psalm 51, and we saw that the heart of a revived church is broken and contrite. That repentance is essentially what invites revival. And today, as we look at Luke 14, we're going to see that the heart of a revived church is reoriented around and responsive to the call of Christ to follow him. Now, uh, if you're not a Christian, or even if you've been a Christian for a long time, this is a good message for you this morning because we are essentially reassessing or reevaluating what it means to genuinely be a follower of Christ. And so the title of the sermon today is called Recounting the Cost of Discipleship, and we have three points. If we're taking notes, you can go ahead and line these out, although I will be going through them point by point. The first point is reorienting our devotion to Christ. 
The second point is responding to the call of Christ. And the third point is renouncing our rights for Christ. The first point, reorienting our devotion to Christ. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 14 again, uh, verse 25 through 35. And really, this is a, a startling and stubborn statement that Jesus makes, is it not? This is one of those passages that um, if you're doing your daily Bible reading plan and you come across it, uh, it's kind of hard to just keep reading past because it, it's a confrontational passage. It is a difficult passage to hear because it's coming out of the mouth of Jesus himself and it is directed straight towards anyone who would desire to follow him and call themselves a Christian. This is no doubt a hard passage to comprehend, but it's even harder to comply with if we're honest with ourselves. And so in verse 25, I'll give you a little bit of context. It says, uh, where am I at? Why do I have it myself turned to Luke chapter 11? Anyway, Luke chapter 14 Verse 25, I'll give you a little bit of context. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. Now what's happening here is Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and as Jesus was performing signs, wonders, and miracles, of course he started to gather a crowd. Who wouldn't want to follow a man that was raising people from the dead, that was feeding five to 10,000 people with a single basket of loaves and fish, who was opening blind eyes, unstopping deaf ears, who wouldn't want to follow a guy like this? Who wouldn't want, or who wouldn't be intrigued by his message, and who wouldn't want to hear what he had to say, right? And so, as, this, as Jesus is, is gathering this crowd, he essentially does something which most preachers dare not do. The crowd gets bigger, his influence is spreading, and rather than Jesus saying, thing, saying something to tickle people's ears and to, get, to, to, to cause the crowd to grow even more, he stops and he turns to them and he issues this extremely challenging statement to them in which he says, listen, I understand that all of you are excited about following me right now. You can clearly see that I have abilities to do things for you that you can't do for yourself. Here's what I need you to know, though. That... Following me is going to cost you your life. Now, this is not what we would call a seeker-sensitive message, okay? <laughs> For anyone that is like in a seeker-sensitive church, like, Jesus, don't say that right now. The crowd's getting big. If you say that, the crowd's going to get much smaller. But Jesus, as we see throughout the scriptures, is not interested in large crowds that are half-heartedly following him he would much rather have a devoted and faithful few that are fully following him. And so Jesus speaks this word into a massive crowd of people that have begun to follow, follow him. And what he says is, is no doubt, as I said, hard to understand and it's even harder to comply with. And so in verse 26, we'll get right into it. It says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now we'll stop there. Already, it seems like Jesus might be contradicting himself. Because if you know much about the teachings of Jesus, it's that he speaks a lot about love. And he speaks a lot about loving him, about loving other people. He even calls us to love our enemies, right, in the Sermon on the Mount. So if Jesus, who calls us to love our enemies, why all of a sudden would he call us to hate our family? That doesn't make any sense. That would be completely backwards, right? 
So one of the things that we learn whenever, or as, as we grow in our faith and we grow in our ability to, to study God's word, one of the things that you'll learn is that scripture must interpret scripture. And so anytime you see something in the Bible that seems to be uncharacteristic of what's in the rest of the Bible, then you need to interpret that passage through the lenses of the rest of the Bible. And you need to zoom out and see in context what Jesus is actually saying. And so no doubt the term hate seems to be at odds with the rest of Jesus' message to love. But we have to understand that Jesus' followers in this time would have known exactly what he was saying. Because the term hate, when when contrasted with love for something else, was actually a Semitic phrase or a Semitic term, excuse me, a Semitic statement, which meant, this is important, to love less in light of a greater love. To love less in light of a greater love. Now again, Scripture interprets interprets Scripture. I'm not going to turn there for the sake of time, but for you Bereans out there, you can take notes, okay? In Genesis 29, 30 through 31, we see that Jacob, by his own profession, loved Leah less than Rachel. Jacob loved Leah less than Rachel. But how God interprets Jacob's lesser love is God actually uses the term hate. It says, Whenever God saw that Jacob hated Leah, he opened her womb, right? But it never, Jacob never said that he hated Leah. He actually just loved Rachel more. And so the term hate here is to love less in light of a greater love. And so when Jesus says that we must hate our family, he is saying that our love for him must far outweigh our love for anyone or anything else. Our love for Christ must far outweigh our love for him or for, for him. <clears throat> our love for him must far outweigh our love for anyone or anything else. Excuse me. And what we're learning in this passage is that Jesus cares about the order of our loves. Theologian Augustine said that rightly ordered love is key to experiencing the fullness that God has for us in Christ, that rightly ordering our loves. And so whenever Jesus says that we must hate our family, the reason that he's coming after family in this cultural context is because family in that time was the strongest identifier for a person's life. That was the strongest and most stable source of a person's identity was their relation to their family. And so Jesus is saying, I no longer want you to even be defined by your relationship primarily to your family. I want you to be defined primarily by your relationship to me. And so let's think about this for a second. What in our lives do we define ourselves primarily by? When someone says, who are you? How do you respond? Do you say, I'm an engineer. I'm an electrician. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm a teacher. I'm a retiree. Right? First of all, you already answered the question wrongly because no one asked, what do you do? We asked who you are. But oftentimes in America, we, we, someone says, who are you? And we start listing out what we do, our roles, not our identity. But what is it that you identify yourself most with? What role? What responsibility? Jesus says, I want you to identify yourself with me completely and wholly over that. 
I want you to see yourself as my follower, as my child. And when you see yourself in light of something else, or when you build or base your identity upon something else, you have misordered your loves. And when Jesus says we must hate our family, he's saying our love for him must far outweigh the love, our love for anything else. He is after our order of loves. Jesus refuses to be, brothers and sisters, our second love. He refuses to play second fiddle to anything else in our lives. And he wants to make that absolutely clear. In Luke 10, 27, Jesus says this is a passage that we're all familiar with. It's called the great commandment. Uh, We often will refer to it as, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you must love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when Jesus says that we need to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, and all of our mind, oftentimes, as Christians, we tend to love God with one of those things, but not all of those things. We love God with all of our mind. Some of us love to love God with our mind. We love to read books. We love to read blogs. We love to to reflect upon deep theological truths. We love to love God with our mind. But oftentimes, our love for God with our mind is disconnected of a love for God with our heart. Or with our soul, which is our will, the, the, the seed of everything that we are. Or something that we often don't pay attention to is we don't pay attention to the fact that Jesus says that we should love him with all of our strength. Now, is he saying that like we should love him with our biceps and our triceps and our quadriceps, right? All of our, all of our manpower, you know, is, is that what he's saying? No, no, no. The word strength there actually comes from a Hebrew word that means our, the best way to, to interpret it would be our veryness. To love him with all of our substance or to love him with everything that we have at our disposal. To love him with all of our strength, all of our resources, all of our money, all of our time. He said, basically, I want you to love me with everything that you have. He uses basically the panorama that he, like the broadest panorama that he possibly can to say, heart, mind, soul, strength, I want you to love me with every fiber of your being and I want you to love me with everything that I have given you at your disposal. I want you to love me with your money, with your time, with your family, with your laptop, with your job. I want you to love me with everything that you have. I want you to love me. And when you don't, Love me with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Your loves are disordered. And listen, friends, when our loves are disordered, our hearts are discontent and our lives are dissatisfied. And this is what Augustine was getting at whenever he says that we won't experience the fullness of all that God has for us if our loves are disordered. By actually loving something more than we love God or loving someone more than we love God, we actually end up in a place of deep dissatisfaction and deep discontentment because loving anything more than God inevitably sets us up for failure and disappointment because God alone is worthy of our greatest love. And when we take our love and we put it in something that is of lesser worth and lesser value, we get lesser satisfaction. God created us to be wholehearted worshipers of him. And when we offer half-hearted devotion, we get half-hearted satisfaction and joy. Does that not make sense? 
kind of the law of thermodynamics, what you put in comes out, right? So when you offer half-hearted devotion to God, you get half-hearted satisfaction in God. And because God is meant to be the all-satisfying, all-supreme joy of our lives, when we offer him half-hearted devotion, we don't get all that it is that he has for us. We don't experience the fullness of his promises held out to us in Christ. As C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Weight of Glory, which is one of my favorite books, I actually get to quote from two of my favorite books today. C.S. Lewis' book, uh, The Weight of Glory, he says this, and some of you have probably heard this quote before. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So C.S. Lewis says, it's not that our, our desires are too strong, it's that they're too weak and that they're not placed in the right, in the, they're not pointed in the right direction. When our desires are pointed primarily towards our, our spouses or our children or our careers or our leisure or our hobbies or our activities and we're seeking to derive all of the joy that we possibly can from that, Lewis says that we are like children playing with mud pies in a slum whenever there is a vacation or a holiday at the sea awaiting us. Now the reason that we struggle with this, the reason that we, that we really struggle to, to live this out, not to believe this, because I see us nodding our heads right now. I don't hear a lot of amens, by the way, but I see us nodding our heads right now. But the reason why it's hard for us to live this out, not just believe it in our minds, is because as people, we have been so engineered in our culture, like our hearts have been so rigged and engineered in our culture to receive instant gratification and instant satisfaction that we can't zoom out and see that what God has on offer for us is eternal. I remember hearing <clears throat> a mentor of mine and a, a, a friend of mine say, a problem with Christians is that we don't know how to live this moment in light of that moment. That moment being whenever Christ comes and consummates all things and makes all things new. The problem with Christians is that we're so short-sighted that we don't know how to live this moment in light of that moment. We don't know how to live the moment that we're in in light of the moment that we are offered where fullness of Christ will be experienced forevermore. And not only that moment then, but the moment that Christ can offer us by just pressing into him through the power of the Holy Spirit and enjoying the riches of fellowship with him in his spirit right now. We don't know how to live this moment in light of that moment. And because of that, we're always left wanting more. We're always going to the wrong places to be filled. We're always looking to the wrong people to be satisfied. But by making sure our loves are rightly ordered here, Jesus is doing two things. He's both guarding the gate to his kingdom, and he's guiding us toward the life we actually long to experience. He's guarding the gate to his kingdom, Meaning Jesus isn't pulling any punches. He doesn't want you to call yourself a follower of his if you're not devoted to him fully. He's guarding the gate to his kingdom. He stands at the gate and he says, are you going to love me with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Are you going to pursue me in that way? If not, then stay right here. 
But he's not just guarding the gate, he's also guiding us into life, right? Jesus said himself in the Sermon on the Mount that broad is the path to destruction and narrow is the way that lead to life and few there be to find it. But this is Jesus actually leading us down that narrow path saying it might be hard, but it's worth it. I'm better than what you're pursuing. Now this is hard for me, friends. This is really hard, if I'm honest. Because, and I... I love my family so much. So much. I love my wife. I love my children so much. I can hardly think about it, obviously, without getting emotional. To know that Jesus is calling me to love him to a degree that causes my love for my family to pale in comparison, it makes me aware just how little I actually love him. And if I'm honest, it's not just my family. I love me. (laughs) I love me. Like my favorite person in the world to be with, even more than my family, is me. (laughs) I'm not kidding. I love me. I love to do things that make me happy. I love to watch things that I love to watch. I love to listen to music that I like to listen to. And I don't want to have to play kids music in the car, okay? Like, I I get tired of listening to, like, Kids Village and all of that kind of stuff. And the wheels on the bus. Like, I just want to listen to some Nirvana every now and then, all right? And not feel guilty about it. I'm a 90s kid. I love it, all right? I love me. And knowing how much I love me and knowing how much I struggle to love God with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength is what makes me pray for revival. God, I need my heart to be revived and renewed because I know that my shallow and feeble attempts to love you with all of my heart, soul, strength, and mind are just that. They are feeble attempts. Help me to love you in a way, God, that you desire to be loved. He's not just guarding the gate. He's guiding us toward the life that we long to experience because he knows that when we love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we actually experience the satisfaction and joy that we long to experience. The second point of the sermon is, and we see this in verse 27, is that Jesus calls us to respond to respond to this, <laughs> to picking up our cross and following him. The second point is responding to the call of Christ. And in verse 27, we see, and I'm telling you, it just doesn't get any easier as we keep reading this passage. Verse 26 is hard enough, but it doesn't get any easier. Verse 27, it says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, mind you, Jesus is saying this before he had taken up his own cross. Those disciples had not seen him take up his cross and die on it. So in their mind, all that they're thinking about right now is that the cross is a tool for torture and execution in Roman culture. As they're hearing this, they can't visualize cross, Christ hanging on that cross. They're not even, some of them aren't even certain that Jesus is going to die yet, right? They're still arguing and debating about that. So they're not seeing Christ hanging on the cross. They're not seeing the crucifixion of Christ. They're seeing just the Roman tool of torture and execution. And they, they hear Jesus say, if you're going to be my disciple, that tool of torture and execution is what you have to pick up and follow me. 
Could you imagine how staggering that would be? They're like, wait, man, I liked it better. I liked it better when you were just like healing blind people and stuff. I liked it better whenever I could come to you and my daughter was sick and then you would just heal her. Like, I liked, I liked that Jesus better. I like the Jesus that does stuff for me better. I don't like the Jesus that calls me to pick up a tool of torture and execution and follow him. Why? Why would Jesus use such a gruesome image? Because, brothers and sisters, and I I don't want to try and soften the point because I don't think Jesus softens the point. He actually wants to illustrate the severity of what it costs to follow him. So he goes and pulls one of the most severe images from culture that he possibly can, which is the Roman cross. The Roman cross in which people were nailed to, naked, and they died by asphyxiation over a course of days and were often left there, right? As their bodies decomposed and rotted. This is the image that Jesus uses to say, if you're gonna follow me, this is what you have to pick up. This is what you have to bear. So listen, the reason he does this is because this is so important. is because before we can call ourselves Christians, Jesus first wants to confront our desires. And he wants to call us to make that life or death choice. So standing right in the middle of our desire to follow Jesus is a cross. But it's not just his cross, it's our cross too. Yes, when we become Christians, we come before the cross of Christ and we say, God, I believe that you died as an atonement for my sins. I believe that you satisfied the wrath of God. I believe that you were killed and that you were buried and that you rose again. I believe these things, God. I want to follow you. And then so Jesus says, okay, on the other side of my cross, then there's your cross. And after you have professed faith, the way in which you live out that profession of faith is by picking up your cross and following me with it. Standing right in the middle of our desire to follow Jesus is a cross, my friends. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, one of my other favorite books, this one probably goes in the top 10. Bonhoeffer, if you've never read The Cost of Discipleship, I would strongly encourage you to read it. Um, Strongly encourage you to read it. Not just read other people who quote it, like read the actual book, you know. It's funny. There's people will be like quoting reformers and things like that. I'd be like, have you read that? No, but I read it in a blog. Okay. Um, you should probably read the book too. The cross is laid, this is Bonhoeffer, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. This is coming from Bonhoeffer, a man who very much lived out this exhortation as he, was, as he suffered and he was martyred for proclaiming Christ in Nazi Germany. 
Bonhoeffer was a man who was deeply concerned, and he takes issue with it in the beginning of the book, The Cost of Discipleship. He, he, he was deeply concerned with what he called cheap grace. And cheap grace is essentially taking the cross of Christ, but not taking up your own cross. Being satisfied with saying that you believe in the cross of Christ and his substitutionary death on your behalf and all of those things and believing that you are justified by, by his grace and even saying that you are justified by his grace through your faith, but your faith never translating into cross-carrying obedience. Bonhoeffer says that is cheap grace. It is not real grace. That is not real Christianity. Now the key here is the term Come after me, in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The reason why this, this term come after me is key is because Jesus expects us to follow him. Listen, friends, if you're a Christian, Jesus actually expects you to submit to his authority and surrender your life to him. He expects you on a daily basis to consider his authority, his reign and rule in your life, and to submit to it. He doesn't want you living in autonomous fashion as if he is not the Lord and ruler of all things, specifically your life. And so Jesus says to come after me, which, which implies that there would be a daily pursuit of him. It's not a set it and forget it, which again is what Bonhoeffer was concerned about. It's that we proclaim faith by God's grace, but then we go on living life as if Christ isn't central to it. We try and squeeze Jesus into the margins of our lives on Sunday mornings or maybe on a Wednesday or a Thursday evening in home group or something like that. But other than that, we never pick up our cross. The only time we carry our cross with us is to the church building or to the home group gathering. And Bonhoeffer says that's not Christianity. In verse 28 through 32, I'll read them. Jesus uses two illustrations to drive this point home. He says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now, Jesus is using two illustrations that his hearers would have been familiar with. And essentially what he's saying with these illustrations is to build a tower or to go to war were both costly endeavors. To build a tower, to build a tower required a lot of planning. It required a lot of supplies. It required a lot of labor. It required a lot. To go to war required a lot. So Jesus says, who among you would set out for something so daunting, something that required so much of you, who would set out to do that without first counting the cost to see whether or not they've actually got it in them to complete it? He says, this is the same, this is the same thing whenever it comes to following me. Before you say yes to me, you need to consider what I'm asking of you. Now this is what happens though. In our culture, in particularly in suburbia, in southern United States of America, here's what we want. We want 
more than anything in our churches, attendance, professions of faith, and baptisms. And we will do almost anything to grow our attendance, to get professions of faith, and to baptize people. Now, you think I might be belaboring this point and exaggerating a little bit too much with what I'm about to say, but I'm not. The entire subcultural construct of Christianity in the suburban South is about church attendance, professions of faith, and baptism. And then once you're in the church and you're attending and you profess faith and you've been baptized, then what we're going to do is we're going to build programs and we're going to build opportunities in the church to see to it that you remain happy, that you remain satisfied. But here's the thing. We're not calling people to obedience to Christ by picking up their cross and following him. And oftentimes what we do, and I spoke with our leaders about this a couple of, uh, last Sunday, the Sunday before, I don't remember. Oftentimes what we do is we lower the bar of discipleship because we want to make sure that anybody and everybody can get over it so that way they stay in our churches. But Jesus will not allow us by his word to ever lower the bar of discipleship. We have to keep it right where it is and we have to tell people, count the cost before you say yes. Count the cost before you get in that water. Count the cost before you become a covenant member and unite yourself with my people in fellowship. Count the cost because once you say yes to me, then I'm going to expect you to say yes to me every day, every moment after that. And if you're not willing to say yes every day, every moment, at every opportunity, in every crossroads, then you cannot be my disciple. You can't call yourself a Christian. Saving faith looks at the call to take up our cross and follow Jesus, and it says, he's worth it. Saving faith looks at our call to take up our cross and follow Jesus and says, he's worth it. This is why Jesus, when confronting the rich young ruler, this young man who says, Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, essentially, keep the commandments. The young man responds back, I've done all these things since I was a child. Jesus says, okay, one thing you lack, go sell all of your possessions, give them to the poor and come follow me. And it says that the young man turned away sorrowful for he had great possessions. In other words, he looked at Jesus and said, not worth it. Possessions, better Jesus, not as good. But saving faith says, I see the cost of discipleship. I see that cross, that gruesome cross looming before me, and I see that Jesus is better. He's worth it. Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul said it like this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live I live in the flesh, or the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul gets it. The life I now live, it's a crucified life. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for me. 
The life I live is not my life. Which brings us to our third point, renouncing our rights for Christ. In verse 33, Jesus says this. So therefore, any, of you, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus says we cannot be his disciple without renouncing everything. You know, in the Greek, in the Greek, Koine Greek there, you know the word everything? You know what it means? Everything. It's astounding. Everything. All of it. Unless you renounce all of it. What? Everything. Seriously? Yes, seriously. Everything. Jesus wants us and expects us and calls us to renounce everything. Because, brothers and sisters, we have to understand that Jesus is after not just our professions, not just our money, not just our baptisms, He's not after church attendance. He's not after participation in discipleship programs. He's not after any of those things. He is after something far greater than those things. He is after your entire life. He wants your entire life. Now listen, he doesn't want to be part of your life. He wants to be your life. He wants to be at the center of it. He doesn't want to be a fragment of it. He wants to be central to it. He wants everything in your life to be built around him, and he expects it to be so. Now, some of you would be like, well, that is very, very egotistical of Jesus to, to think that he's worth everything. But th the reality is, it's not egotistical for Jesus. It's not self-centered for Jesus, because Jesus is the only thing in the universe that is worth building your life around. Everything else that you build your life around, albeit a relationship, a possession, a career, or anything like that, is temporal and fleeting. Christ is eternal, and Christ is all-satisfying. So he expects us to renounce our right to everything, even the right to life itself. But listen, because everything in our culture says that we should pursue what we want, that we should find what makes us happy and pursue at all costs, that we should determine our dreams and spend our lives pursuing them, this makes Jesus' words all that much more difficult for us to hear today. I mean, how many times have you not heard, just watching television or listening to an interview, someone says, I am just pursuing my dreams. Now, I'm not up here with a stick trying to hit the pinata of your dreams and just ruin it for you, okay? Like, I am saying, though, that as a Christian, if your dreams aren't, submiss aren't submissive to the greater redemptive plan of God, then your dreams are out of line. If you're dreaming of something and you're devoting yourself wholeheartedly to it, but not seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then you can pursue those dreams, but listen, you will do it with the forces of the world against you. You won't do it with the favor of God behind you. So pursue your dreams. But if they're not the dreams that God has, which is ultimately to see disciples made in all nations and ultimately to see his redemptive purpose fulfilled in the earth, if your dreams don't in some way connect to that greater dream that God has for all of humanity, then you will be pursuing those dreams, like I said, against the forces of the world itself, but not with the favor of God behind you. 
When God promises to go with us, to bless us in our endeavor to make disciples, he does that only in so much as that we are committed to his cause, which is making disciples. But Jesus calls us not only to be disciples, friends, he calls us to make disciples. Another sermon, though. Though Jesus calls us to self-denial, he calls us to stop trying to run our own life in pursuit of our own self-obsessed, self-glorifying dreams and ambitions. But he doesn't just call us to renounce our pursuits, he calls us to renounce the light, the right to our very own life. Acts chapter 20, I'm closing with this. The Apostle Paul says, when speaking to the church at Ephesus and the elders there, he says, but do not, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only... I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What does Paul say? I don't account my life of any value. Paul is saying, to some degree, which obviously shows that he's a whole lot more godly than I am, that he has gotten to a point to where he loves himself at least little enough to say that his greatest pursuit in life, his greatest pursuit in life is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That his greatest pursuit, I don't account my life of any value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course in ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now some of us sitting there would be like, well, pastor, that was Paul's calling. He was called to go and make the gospel unignorable to the Gentiles, right? And so what he's saying is, God, I just want to be obedient to that call. But here's what you have to understand, friends. That is your call too. If you are in Christ, the call of Christ, which is to make disciples and to make the gospel unignorable, is your call too. So Christ calls us to renounce our rights for the sake of advancing his cause. Fundamentally, to be a disciple of Jesus is to lay down your rights for a cause. And that cause is the cause of Christ in the world. It's renouncing all that you have to experience and pursue all that Jesus offers. Now, a few little points of application before I make the crescendo statement and then pray and close this out. How will we know? How can we know that we would be willing to renounce our lives? In response to this passage and commentary on this passage, my old boss wrote a few things. His name's Steve Timmis. He wrote a few things in a book called I Wish Jesus Hadn't Said That. And uh, obviously it's hyperbole, but I'm going to read a few of the points that he made in response to this passage. He says, and pay attention, if you're not prepared to miss your favorite TV show, in order to spend time in Christian community, you can be certain you won't give up your life. If you're not prepared to get out of your house on a Saturday to go and serve someone else, if you're not prepared to pursue people who are different from you in order to be a blessing to them, if you're not prepared to give up a holiday abroad so you can give money to support someone in gospel ministry, if you're not prepared to miss out on a promotion so you can free up time to invest more time and energy into important relationships, or if you're not prepared to jeopardize a friendship, risk rejection, or ruin your street credit so that you can tell others about Jesus, you can be 100% sure that you won't give up your life. How can we ever say with any assurance that we would be willing to give up our life for Christ if we're not willing to give up lesser things for Christ? We're praying for revival here, brothers and sisters, because I know 
all too well in my own heart, and I know by spending time in community with my brothers and sisters in here that we need God to renew our hearts because I know I would, on this list, probably choose almost every single one of those things. Unless I had my wife, also known as the Holy Spirit, prompting me to respond to obedience and faith in Christ. You say, man, this is difficult, Joe. Where do we get this power? Listen, we get this power through Christ himself and the power of the Holy Spirit. How? Jesus calls us to renounce all that we have, but he renounced all that he had first. So Jesus makes this statement knowing full well the mission that he's on and the task that's at hand for him. Jesus calls us to renounce all that, he, all that we have because he renounced all that he had for us. Jesus calls us to surrender our lives because Jesus first surrendered his life. Jesus doesn't ask us to go ahead in, in this, brothers and sisters, but he does expect us to follow him in it. Like Jesus, the way to life is through death. And this is what he's saying. Jesus is saying, I have given everything up for you so that you might experience everything that I have for you. I've given it all up for you so that you can actually experience it in its fullness through the power of the Holy Spirit. Why would we not take him up on that offer, brothers and sisters? Perhaps it's because our loves are disordered. Perhaps it's because the cost is too much to us. Perhaps it's because we're not ready to renounce all that we have. But my prayer is that by God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we would. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before your throne of grace and we humble ourselves in your sight, God. We acknowledge, yet again, Lord, that we are unable to do this work in ourselves that you call us to follow you and we realize that because the flesh is so weak and because our hearts are so stubborn and because they've become so hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and riches over the course of our lives, God, we know that because these things are present in our lives, God, these struggles, that it, it makes the call to follow you seem impossible. And God, the reality is that it is impossible apart from your work your power, the Holy Spirit strengthening us and sustaining us to follow you, God, as we seek to pick up our cross and follow you and be obedient to you and submissive to you, God, we, we know, God, that we can't do it without you. So help us, Father. Help us this morning, Lord, to come to grips with where we're really at. God, don't let us just nod our heads at this word, at this, at this passage, at this statement, and then move out of this place unaffected, unscathed by it. Or do your work of breaking the bones that have grown crooked in our souls, Lord God, and setting them straight so that we might follow you wholeheartedly, God, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We might love you for you are worthy of our love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.